This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to journalist Kareem Chahayeb. He is based, born and raised in Lebanon and today he's going to be speaking to us about the tension and the clashes that have come about after the uh, horrific explosion at the port there last month. Basically, since that happened, there have been anti-government protests. The security forces have come down very hard on the people. There have been armed clashes in the south of Beirut and other places. It's all looking very tense right now. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront. we should start with the explosion right i think it's important to kind of put the recent tension into context with the aftermath of the explosion you know what i mean um maybe you can can talk about that like how is everybody feeling directly after that the uh, the explosion at the port the beirut port explosion you know really came you know well to be fair there's no good time for an explosion to happen but you know when it happened you know we we're talking about lebanon going through an extreme economic and political crisis when the port explosion happened, it sort of just created this emotional paralysis, I would say, for a couple of days. Uh, people were extremely shocked. Um, just, just, just the visual of, of, of the explosion looked like something from a, from a movie, it looked like CGI. Uh, I remember I was in disbelief when I saw what it looked like. But the thing about the explosion which increased tensions was that the cause behind the explosion and the impact it had... Um, sort of resembles everything that much of the Lebanese population has been fighting for uh, since the uprising in October or the October Revolution. Uh, you know, the Beirut port is sort of this black box. Um, there's not a lot of transparency in how it's run. And the fact that there was a shipment of ammonium nitrate, which came in six years ago, and all the security and state institutions didn't properly get rid of it, and just left it there, ultimately wounding thousands of people, killing 200 and leaving hundreds of thousands homeless, is sort of a sign of how things are run here. You have this ruling class that really has zero interest in the welfare of people and um, is primarily driven by, by its personal profit. Right. And then the explosion comes... And it's basically, like you said, like the worst possible time for it, right? What kind of effect did that have politically? Right. So, you know, Lebanon's ruling class is interesting compared to its regional counterparts. You know, it's not one ruling family. It's not a royal family. It's not a, a military dictatorship. It's not a single party state. It's, it's, it's this oligarchy of several parties that represent different sectarian and geopolitical interests. And so... When the uprising happened, there was sort of this pushback from the ruling class where, you know, some tried to fight with rival parties to make it seem like they're pro-uprising and so on. But the narrative was always, you know, it's the people against the ruling class. What basically happened after the port explosion is that it sort of consolidated these factional differences among the ruling class, whether it's you know the pro-Iran factions or the pro-United States factions or whatever. And so what ultimately happened is now what we're seeing is a political scenario which looks a lot like Lebanon 10 years ago, where you have sort of these pro-West parties and then you have a pro-West, pro-GCC. And of course you have you know the parties that are close to Hezbollah or allied with Hezbollah. And what it's kind of done, unfortunately, I think for the uprising for people on the ground is that it's kind of... Um, created a, a new binary which which excludes people on the ground where you have a political opposition but within the ruling class which are the pro-West parties which don't have a huge stake in leadership as their pro-Iranian counterparts right now. So unfortunately these kinds of natural, not natural, national catastrophes um, you know, play to the disadvantage of the uprising in many ways where a lot of the efforts of movement building and political building from different groups that emerge from the uprising or that um, experience the growth spurting the uprising is no longer getting the attention that might be crucial for their political mobilization. So in a weird way, this explosion, which destroyed a lot of the capital, has sent Lebanon back politically by a decade or so. It's kind of ironic. Yeah. 
Um, and then directly after this, you know, there's a lot of tension, the explosion. There were protests on the street, which got very heavy. Certainly the security forces came down very hard on people. Um, tell tell us all about that. Right, yeah. So, you know, you know, the Lebanese security forces, um, you know, are generally heavy handed. Uh, when the uprising happened, you know, there was lots of weird moments of tension where the security forces sort of showed some restraint to a very, you know, minimal extent. And of course, you know, standards are low here anyway, right? If security forces aren't shooting people in the head, they're showing restraint. I mean, let's be frank, right? Um, but the sort of these revenge protests, as many people called them, where they brought in sort of fake nooses with cardboard cutouts of different political leaders after the explosion. They called for accountability and revenge and so on. When those protests took place, um, I have to say, this is probably the most aggressive I've ever seen the security forces in Lebanon. I mean, within a few minutes, they literally filled downtown Beirut with tear gas. Um, you know, you know, the gas was reaching people several blocks away, um, you, know, you know, the elderly and children and so on. It was pretty heavy. And of course, um, I'm sure you must have seen, um, you know, videos from different journalists um, or maybe Human Rights Watch did a really good sort of investigative report on the matter. But, you know, live ammunition was fired, uh, pellets, rubber corded steel bullets. Um, I think I counted, you know, over a dozen journalists attacked, whether they were beaten with, you know, the butt of a rifle or shot with rubber bullets and so on. It was pretty brutal, you know, I, I have to say. Um, and I think it kind of shows, one how angry people have gotten. If you compare to the sort of protests from last October, a lot of people who are not necessarily like, you know, maybe politically radical, the sort of, you know, reformist and and so on, they sort of had, this, they, they came out with this hopeful veneer, uh, you know, and now suddenly they're calling for hanging the political leadership. At the same time, it also shows that regardless of what, whether the world is watching or not, uh, the Lebanese security forces are happy to use violence against protesters and journalists and just about anybody um, even though of course they're 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 armed with um, weapons primarily from you know from France and the United States and so on they're still willing to use those uh, against uh, mostly peaceful protesters and, and and the press and so on so it kind of is a big reveal of the extent of which the ruling class uh, is, is willing to go to protect its interests and I think for many people I spoke to, who are from that sort of you know optimistic and, and happy side, they kind of um, have lost hope that this ruling class can do anything. You know, imagine you have an explosion, which is probably the large explosion in the history of your country, and you leave hundreds of thousands homeless. You know, you kill two hundred all just because you you know were, 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 were you know basically you know decided not to run things in a way that puts your own people first, and they didn't resign. Not a single apology. Um, the only thing that was brought up was that, you know, you know, oh, Lebanon will rise again and all that, you know, uh, public relations jargon. But, you know, many people are are angry and outraged, of course, but a lot of people are super depressed. You know, they, they feel that they're stuck. Um, they feel that if this happened in any other country in the world, even if it were an accident, uh, the leadership would at least resign or at least have an investigation that with updates. We've, we're having investigation, but all the updates are coming from journalists that are digging information and relying on leaks. Um, so it's, and, and, and when you kind of tell the story, and I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking about it right now, it, it's, 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 it's insane, right? It's, um, it, it actually does resemble sort of a, a full-on totalitarian state, even though Lebanon you know, is, is semi-democratic and, and, and so on. So, um, it, it really shows the, the, the extent in which this ruling class is going to entrench itself in power, uh, whether it's using excessive violence or, um, or any other means. I think we should point out here as well that the protesters weren't, it wasn't, you know, sectarian after the explosion. Those protests were simply anti-government, right? It wasn't like one political party or whatever. Oh, yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, look, for context, if you look at these... Um, there's a lot of pictures of them, you know, on the wires and other news outlets and so on, and, and they're quite remarkable. You know, when people brought out those, you know, fake nooses and cardboard cutouts of the political leadership, they included everyone under the sun, pro-West, pro-Iran, any party, you name it, right? Uh, the narrative in the uprising, for the most part, has always been that it's, you know, us against them. Us, as in the people, and them against the ruling class, the ruling parties, regardless of what sect they represent and regardless of, what, of how much power they currently have. 
they kind of call them the oligarchy or the ruling mafia or the ruling cartel. And this is the new narrative. And this is a narrative that's anti-sectarian. Um, whether it's left-wing or not, it depends on the segment of the protest you're talking to, but it's definitely anti-sectarian. There's a big wave for um, a representative sort of government that is built on uh, political competency, representation of the constituencies, and based on the fact that the people you elect are supposed to do things for you. They're supposed to guarantee, you know, healthcare and education, and they should be investing into the environment and affordable housing and all these things. So this this is definitely a major sociopolitical transformation in Lebanon. And over the years, you see far more people saying that political sectarianism no longer works. And I think, and I think with every generation, you're going to see it as sort of something that's completely rejected. And you can see with how the leadership responds to it. Um, the leadership you know, doesn't talk about the rights of certain sects as much as before, maybe in, in, in public in, in private meetings with hardcore supporters. But in reality, it's quite remarkable how this leadership has sort of tried to echo the interests of the protesters by talking about secularism and transparency and accountability and anti-corruption um, and justice, right? But, you know, in reality, they're just not doing anything. Um, and I think the fact that they've responded shows how they're shaken, right? They're shaken that people are rising up against them from across the country, across different classes. Granted, the ideologies are different, but it shows that there's a political transformation in Lebanon taking place. And yes, absolutely. The, the May pro the, sorry, the August uh, protest after the explosion was definitely anti-sectarian. It was literally about, you know, revenge and justice towards everybody. Every politician under the sun was named, um, without any exceptions. And this, is, I think, is very symbolic of, of a new wave of politics that much of the population hopes to, um, to see in Lebanon. Right. So where are the protests at now? I know last weekend um, there were some clashes again when Macron came in, um, but it had died down a bit in, in about that time. What's, what's going on? Because, well, the government has, they did kind of dissolve at one point, right? Like, everyone kind of left. But then, you know, speak to Lebanese friends, everyone was like, yeah, no, this means nothing. Um, maybe explain that for us as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you know, you know, I think, unfortunately for the uprising here in Lebanon, you know, the protests died out pretty quickly. And, you know, there are many reasons, right? First of all, you know, the response from the security forces, you know, scared a lot of the people who would generally go to these protests or who wanted to go to these protests, you know, the elderly and families and some people brought their kids and they were tear gassed, right? And when they heard about rubber bullets and some people, you know, being critically wounded at one point, um, you know, they're not going to take their kids to protests anymore. The elderly don't want to go to protests anymore. And people are also like, they're depressed, you know, recent numbers from the United Nations show that 55% of the population live in poverty, 70% of the wealth rests in 10%. Of the population, you know, so extreme economic inequality, you know, surge in poverty in less than a year, and of course, no government sanctioned programs, healthcare, housing, you name it. So even after the explosion, there's no government rescue plan. People are relying on their own back pockets, uh, you know, local fundraisers, and if they're lucky, some NGOs and charities supporting them. Now, regarding the cabinet resigning, you know, Cabinet resigning is definitely something big, right? It's the prime minister, it's it's ministers, right? It's it's not it's not it's not a small component of the Lebanese government, but because the Lebanese government is sort of built on a sectarian power sharing system, um, you know, people don't vote for the prime minister and cabinet. People only vote for parliament and their local governments. So what this ultimately means, uh, Jake, is 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 that the new cabinet. And uh, is sort of uh, and, and prime minister are sort of picked based on negotiations between different political parties. And ultimately, you know, they have these internal consultations and so on. So people have a say in who the best candidate is. And for many people, as long as it's these political parties in power in parliament and so on, that are the decision makers, then that cabinet who are who is ultimately appointed by these parties um, will even if this cabinet are these independent, you know, even let's say progressive reformists, right? They won't be able to move freely uh, without intervention from their political handlers. And this is why I think uh, ex-Prime Minister Hassan Diab sort of went down with a whimper. And this is sort of why the new Prime Minister, uh, Mustafa Adib, also kind of made into power with very little interest or reaction from the people, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So it's basically a shallow kind of gesture, would you say? 
Yeah, I think so. You know, I think you know that with the Diab government and now Adib, these are people who are who never had such a high political post before. It's sort of a way to appeal. Um, in a half-baked way, I would say, to protesters and the international community by saying these are not people who are major political figures and that they represent sort of technocratic leadership. But at the same time, if these people are appointed by the political oligarchy in Lebanon, and of course it's an oligarchy that, ha- that has the majority of the resources, the influence, the businesses, and so on, then frankly, um, they sort of operate as puppets in a way and they actually act as a shield for the ruling class in Lebanon. The ruling class, it's such a sophisticated structure, I would say, from the ruling oligarchy in Lebanon because they've managed to take control of most of the resources, develop close ties with, with others in the private sector, and then sort of split politics and political leadership and um, uh, government positions the way that you would say that, let's say, major corporations in the US would split economic resources. Uh, and then they would kind of use the sectarianism as a tool for these divisions. Um, so it really is, I think, such a it's it's a very it's a very nefarious form of guaranteeing economic inequality. And I think economic inequality is nefarious no matter how you spin it, but it's such an evil way, I think, because you basically find so many layers to pit the working classes against each other. Whether it's based on sect, whether it's based on race, you know, against refugees from Syrian or Palestinian origin, or even migrant workers from Africa or Asia. So this is kind of the layers of, of, of economic uh, power sharing in Lebanon with sectarianism and xenophobia as the sort of, um, as an engine. Yeah, no, I agree. This is why sectarianism is always helpful for the people kind of, you know, standing on your head, essentially. Um, with, with that in mind, what did the... What are the, you know, the protesters, the anti-government protesters, what do you guys actually want? You know, like what would be, what is the main demand essentially? Yeah, you know, um, the thing with the anti-government protesters, and I think this is something that's a bit, I think, a bit of a problem with how it was sort of covered, is that they were covered sort of as like this one wave. Um, But it's a very divided movement. This is very important, right? There is such a gap in how politics are done in Lebanon. For decades now, since the end of the civil war, unions were busted, a, uh, you know, grassroots movement sort of faded out and were replaced by NGOs that sort of did, you know, studies and mild advocacy work. But real grassroots political work was sort of kicked to the curb, unions and, and, and so on. So the uprising sort of saw an awakening, I would say, of you know, bringing back these unions over the years, we've seen the politicization of student movements across the country. And we're starting to kind of see them develop themselves further in their structure. The new political parties, which sort of ran in the past on very sort of broad slogans of, oh, we're, we're anti-sectarian or we're secular, are now beginning to realize that these broad coalitions um, in the middle of an economic crisis don't work. So if you're going to be anti-corruption, you have to talk about, well, how are you going to implement an anti-corrupt system or what are your solutions to healthcare and suddenly you realize that some people believe in privatizing healthcare further and some people believe in universal healthcare you know like a public healthcare taxation is the same thing some believe in progressive taxes some believe in lowering taxes so so the protest or uprising you know whatever you want to call it there is there are some similar demands that that are overarching them right and a lot of it really is a replacement is, is was well representation to change. They want people who are going to work in service of the people in cabinet, particularly, to launch an urgent and swift economic rescue plan to get the Lebanese economy back on track. And a lot of the issues with the economy, people will agree, is that there are no productive sectors. You know, agriculture and industry were sort of just kicked to the curb after the civil war, and we sort of became the service-based economy, just luxury tourism and banking and, and, and real estate and construction, but without anything that's productive. Um, a lot of people also believe in improving the social safety net for people. Uh, our social, you know, our social security program in Lebanon is, you know, is, is virtually scant, uh, you know, scant, and um, you know, so these are sort of things. It's very bare bones, you know, um, healthcare, education, uh, creating a productive economy, and of course, many people are supportive of of auditing uh, the political leaders, auditing the the central bank and the commercial banks and so on. So. They're very, very broad, to be fair. But I think it also shows how 
suppressed doing politics in Lebanon has been. It's almost like the uprising is for an entirely new political ecosystem rather than just for a new political um, ideology and how things are run. And actually shows the sad state of affairs politically in Lebanon. Yeah, I, so I see what you're saying. So basically, like all of those demands, none of them are even going to go anywhere without essentially a toppling of the government, right? Like, it doesn't sound like it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, for for many of these, you know, for I say most, you know, of these people, they, do, they don't believe that there's room for anyone who's currently in government. There's a lot of there's a lot of sort of debates about whether they should have early elections or not and whether, you know, what the solution really is in terms of how to get the transfer of power. But the fact of the matter is the reforms that people want, no matter what they are in particular, because they do differ depending on who you're talking to, which kinds of groups you're talking to, are not compatible with the ruling class in Lebanon the way it is right now. Um, You know, so for example, you know, Lebanon, for example, passed a few transparency laws in the past couple of years, which are very important if they're used to their full effect. They're not perfect, but they're they're significant. But, you know, think of it like this. To what extent will they be implemented by the people that are mostly, that have been the main, the main patrons of corruption in the first place, right? So basically, it's almost like a sham court, a kangaroo court, if you will. So the question is, how do you take on such a massive political leadership that has amassed its popularity in many years through sectarian fear-mongering, um, fascistic-like cults of personality, and, uh, and of course, economic resources. So it is a huge battle for change in Lebanon. And the, I would argue that the port explosion has almost consolidated that power because now there's so much interference from the international community. Yeah, well, well let's talk about the interference from the international community. What, like, specifically... Let, let, Let's start with Macron. Like, I see him, he's got his nose in there. I don't trust Macron personally. Like, I feel like that guy is always out for himself. But um, what's he doing? What, 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 is it, what are the other countries doing? I see the US is moving in as well. Like, what's going on with all that? Oh, yeah. You know, when Macron visited, um, you know, a couple of days after the explosion, I was in one of the affected areas in Jamaica, and I was kind of covering at the time how there's different, you know, community movement, community groups and grassroots movements and some NGOs helping with the cleanup effort and so on. And suddenly you see this massive motorcade, you know, 10 cars um, with Lebanese soldiers. And I will see like the French flag on it, just Macron visiting. And I mean, he kind of came in and he did what no Lebanese politician did, where he kind of just started talking to the people. And, you know, some were cheering for him on and some were saying, well, let's just use anti-government slogans to kind of show our intent. And that sort of made headlines, right? And so Macron kind of came in saying, you know, I'm here to you know to help Lebanon because Lebanon's you know an ally, aka you know a former colony, and um, but at the same time, I you know he wants to kind of throw uh, a carrot to an angry population or the uprising or whatever you want to call it by you know saying that he's not going to be giving a blank check to the Lebanese government. You know, and he comes back a couple of weeks a couple of weeks later. Actually, no, it comes back a month later, and you know he sort of pushes this conditional aid for Lebanon by saying, you know, economic development aid and so on. You know, it has to come with all these structural reforms. We need to form a government. We need to do, you know, uh, transparent auditing, all these things. Now, what Macron is trying to do and the government he's trying to form really is sort of a consensus government from the ruling elite with the token inclusion of a couple of folks from civil society, probably for a couple of small minor portfolios, right? And I think the idea with Macron we got a lot of controversy for including Hezbollah in the conversation by saying Hezbollah are a political party that are elected by the Lebanese people and so on. Um, this, of course, really pissed off the Americans uh, because the Americans have taken a far more hardline approach towards Lebanon. You know, over the years, America's main issue with Lebanon is Hezbollah, and they've been countering it by f- heavily funding Lebanese state institutions, including the army and the police, uh, as well as, of course, other ministries and so on, USAIDs everywhere. And, and, and what have you, right? Um, the United States and Macron are sort of in a diplomatic dispute about Lebanon right now. Macron and the EU are sort of, ironically, sharing the same interests as Russia when it comes to Lebanon by having this national unity government representing different political parties and they kind of implement reforms. They throw a few bones to the population. They prevent any sort of unrest in the country and keep things going. But, you know, they're under some pressure and given the population, you know, anger, the UN can kind of play on that and pressure Lebanon further, plus the economic crisis. The United States is using this opportunity to kind of go hardball on Lebanon. And a great example of this 
is how United States backed parties have boycotted this new prime minister and how today the United States issued sanctions on two uh, ex-Lebanese ministers. Um, they say they're anti-corruption uh, sanctions, but if you look at the press release from the Treasury Department, uh, you can see it's mostly about their political and economic ties with Hezbollah, although they do, they do include a couple of things on related to corruption, uh, you know, siphoning money for uh, political patronage and so on. So the U.S. is seeing this as an opportunity to kind of go hard on Hezbollah and to kind of try and force a government that would exclude Hezbollah or at least corner them and prevent them from making a further ascent, whereas I think Macron is being a bit more diplomatic to the entire ruling class and trying to prevent any sort of further divisions. Um, now, what will this come to? We don't know. I mean, I think it's still early stages, um, but uh, we are waiting to see what our new cabinet will look like because we have a new prime minister designate. And I think the U.S. sanctions that were announced earlier this evening and sort of the hardball approach that the U.S. is playing uh, will definitely throw, will definitely be like a, you know, a wrench thrown into the Macron project, in my opinion. Mm. And what was the reception like uh, when Macron came the first time? I know I saw the videos and people were like, yeah, it's good to have him here. Now, a lot of diaspora online were like, this is terrible, you know, former France, you know, colonizer. But I'm more interested in what the people there are actually saying, you know. Right. Yeah, totally. I mean, of course, I think his first visit was heavily, was, was far more divided, I would say, than the second, right? So the first visit kind of came in. Some people gave him the benefit of the doubt. They would say, look, you know, Macron, of course, he's a president of a country. He, you know, he's not, he's not one of us. He has his own motives, right? But they feel that at least from his project that they could sort of, you know, win a thing or two, right? Maybe Macron will convince, will force the Lebanese government to implement one decent reform, maybe a transparency reform or an audit or maybe um, invest a bit better or so on, right? Or maybe they would, he would pressure the government to be more inclusive of independent political parties in the system or something like that. So people were, were very desperate to be fair, Jake, you know, and and, you know, some people sort of idolize Macron in many ways and that's, you know, whatever. But but people were extremely desperate that they were just kind of hopeful that maybe this sort of shaming of the Lebanese ruling parties would pressure them to do something, right? You know, it, yeah, and, you know, people are extremely desperate. Um, and I think they were hoping for anything. And so they said maybe Macron will push for maybe one or two good things that will benefit the population at large. He sort of comes back later and his personality kind of changes, becomes much more diplomatic and lenient and sort of, you know, I remember when, um, I think it was a journalist who asked him, you know, um, what do you think about the protest demands for the topping of the government and cabinet? And he goes, well, you know, parliament was elected and therefore it's their right to do the political process and stuff. So he was far more diplomatic, I would say. And this sort of, this sort of you know, upset people. I remember I interviewed uh, a doctor who was in one of the most overcrowded hospitals treating, you know, 700 plus patients in two hours. And when Macron came, he said, okay, well, this is interesting. You know, he's shaming the politicians, you know, that that's always like a, a short term sort of uh, pleasure. And then maybe, maybe there could be something positive to come out of this. Maybe, who knows, right? And then second time around, when he came in September, he just said, this feels like some sort of PR stunt, like a touristic trip. You know, Macron goes to a cedar reserve and plants a cedar tree to mark 100 years of Lebanon and then, you know, has lunch with politicians and there's a huge fanfare from the Air Force and, and all that. So people were a bit disappointed because they felt that maybe Macron would sort of push the United Nations agenda on Lebanon, which, you know, calls for more transparency and a more equitable, more equitable economic reforms and so on. But of course, it seems uh, that people have lost sort of faith already. It was just a very short term glimmer of hope. But yeah, definitely when he first came, some people were very happy about it. They thought, OK, this could really uh, be a, a sucker punch to the Lebanese government and we can take advantage of it and, 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 and as an uprising or whatever and carry on. But it doesn't seem to be the case right now. No, I changed this tune. Um there's been other clashes which I'm interested in, right? So the more militant kind of clashes, more sectarian in nature. There was one a few weeks ago, and then there was even like some clashes last night. Um, tell me about them. Like, I think the first ones were in what South Beirut, right? Like a couple weeks back. Yeah, yeah. So the first, one, the first one was was just south of Beirut, I would say. Yeah, it's south of Beirut, and uh, basically this was a clash between you know, Hezbollah and Amal supporters, so not like they're 
paramilitary wing or whatever the term is and sort of these Sunni clans they're often referred to as Arab tribes um, and you know according to local media reports it was sort of sparked by the hanging of uh, Ashura banner you know the the, 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 the Shia the Shia tradition and the, the Sunni Arab tribes or whatever you want to call them felt you know disturbed by it and that sort of led to a confrontation and then that's when sort of arms kind of came into play and the class went on for a while and you know you kind of look at i mean the army intervened eventually but you know they used assault rifles and there was you know you know you know rpgs and in, in, in the process as well it was pretty crazy and that sort of um fueled uh, some sectarian tensions on the street that we have not seen to such an extent in a while i mean we see those every now and then but it's a big deal in beirut though right i mean I mean, I think, I mean, this particular clash and, and so on. Look, I mean, we had a couple of clashes that were sort of similar. We had one in June when some supporters uh, from Baha'u'llah Hariri, who are you know, mostly Sunnis, were, were sort of jeering at the pro-Hezbollah supporters, and that turned into clashes at night in Beirut. And then there was sort of um, an, a similar incident as well, you know, between um, Sunnis and, and, and Shias in, um, I want to say, December. But I think the context in which it's currently happened now, which is, of course, after the explosion, this sort of weak political situation, Lebanon's collapsed economically. Who knows if it's going to collapse politically as well? So this sort of scared people. And of course, um, there was the other clashes that took place the other day in Tari Ejdidi, and it turned out it was sort of between uh, supporters of Saad Harir, our ex-prime minister, and Bahal Harir, who's actually Saad Harir's older brother, but it sort of emerged as sort of this uh, quote-unquote opposition political figure. Um, so it kind of shows how the political situation is very fragile. I mean, if you think of the area where those clashes last night took place in, in Tari Ejdid in, you know, in Beirut, it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a political stronghold for Hariri. And to kind of see this break out uh, the way it did, it's quite symbolic of how shaky everything is. Um, of course... These kinds of clashes between political partisans of different ruling class or let's say establishment people. Granted, Baal Hariri is not. Um, there's no political party that that he has that represents in government, but he sort of emerged as someone who's a multi-billionaire um, figure. I mean, the fact that this has happened, um, of course, will um, could sort of trump, I think, a lot of the grassroots mobilizations because you almost have these instinctive fears of another civil war and. Lebanon went through a civil war from 1975 to 1990, went through occupation by both Israel and Syria, and of course went through a war in 2006, and went through sporadic armed clashes for various periods before. And so there's almost like this, there's, there's such a big trauma in Lebanon, I would say, that you know across society where the idea of armed conflict and clashes just triggers these traumas, and uh, it. It's and and you you can even see how in in the past when there were attempts of kind of creating these uprisings or or or, or protests to 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 you know against the sectarian system and for you know more you know reformist government or whatever you want to call it and the first thing the government would do to kind of scare people away is saying well look next door at Syria do you want Lebanon to turn into Syria look at all the refugees coming to your country do you want to live like them do you want to drown in the Mediterranean when you're looking for safety do you want groups like ISIS to emerge in your home territory so um, this really um, is, is a scare tactic in Lebanon now I think in this current context with how bad things are I mean a lot of people say you know what there's nothing left to lose but at the same time when you have these clashes that are very close to you it's some people will probably second guess. So again, it's such a fragile situation. We haven't seen something like this in a very long time, Jake. Yeah, I mean, see, this what this what I was thinking because I, I understand that like the anti-government clashes are very you know symbolic and they're powerful and the the people want to you know stop this corruption. But like you've just said, the people with the militias, the people with the arms are the sectarian groups. It's going to be very hard to battle them if they suddenly decide we don't want these people doing this. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because if you want to take away, you know, the sophisticated economic patronage or political patronage networks from the ruling class um, and how they use the lack of the existence of social services to keep people politically committed, if you want to take away 
the economic resources that the political parties have, the sorry, the ruling parties have to sort of build themselves. And whereas a lot of these new groups, you know, rely on just like basic fundraising, they don't have weapons, right? And at the end of the day, you could have many, many protesters, but if but when you're facing not just the state, but the ruling oligarchy, which has the monopoly of arms and weapons, um, you're sort of uh, coerced to the extreme, you're cornered to the max, both economically and also in terms of the, the, the weapons. And, um, and as we see in these clashes, I mean, you know, we're talking about clashes that have, you know, assault, assault rifles and rock, uh, RPGs. Um, it's not, um, you know, it's not people throwing sticks and stones at each other, you know. Um, so it is a very daunting uh, prospect in the, in, in, in this, uh, the circumstances. Well, this is the sad reality that, unfortunately, you know, to fight fire, you have to have fire. Um, that's just the way it is, no matter where you are in the world, I, I honestly think. Um, well, talking about all this, what what's the position right now with, with Hezbollah? Like, I know they're very powerful, but things are changing quite a lot. I mean, we even saw in the protests where people were hanging effigies of Nasrallah, which, I mean, as far as I'm aware, is quite unusual to see on the, you know, those kind of protests. How how are they playing all of this? Yeah, I do agree. I mean, when when I saw that uh, cardboard cutout of Hassan Nasrallah, I was like, wow. <laughs> um, definitely did not expect to see that, for sure. Yeah, I mean, look, Hezbollah are definitely, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of sort of exaggerations on how much power they've lost since the uprising. You know, they are a dominant, they are the dominant political party in Lebanon. Um, their ally, their, 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 their main ally outside of their sect is the largest Christian party, the party of the president of of ex-foreign minister Gibran Basil, and they have the largest share in parliament, you know, uh, their allies have the largest share in parliament, they have major positions in, in, in key ministries, right? Well, with Hezbollah, they're in a bit of a tricky situation, because, I mean, now with the U.S. sanctions regime trying to extend outside of the party itself, but also to allies from other parties, and today we saw them extend to a very high... Um, a very high uh, political figure from the Ambal party, which is the other Shia party, but also a uh, an ex-transportation minister who is Christian, but who is an ally of Hezbollah. And so the sanction regime expanding at a time when Lebanon's economy is sort of, you know, well, it's collapsed, um, will definitely cause lots of pressure on Hezbollah compared to before. Um, and... I think internally as well among Hezbollah supporters, you know, I think, again, there's an exaggeration that everybody's turning on Hezbollah now. No, there's a lot of committed Hezbollah supporters in Lebanon, I would say. However, there are lots of people that are sort of questioning the, the party in the sense that, there, you know, many people, you know, will come say like, you know, I support Hezbollah's right to having arms. or I like Hassan Nasrallah, but I believe that um, X, Y, and Z MPs from the party or, minister, or this minister from the party... Um, is doing questionable things or I believe that there are certain issues within the party that need to be internally investigated or I think the party should definitely be more supportive of the uprising or, 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 right? Um, Which, of course, is a significant shift in general because, again, if you look at the political culture in Lebanon and the loyalists of these political parties, the loyalty towards these parties, Jake, is the same loyalties you see for 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 royal families for in, in, in military dictatorships almost like you know the leadership are the leadership placed on a pedestal you know they you know they, there are songs about them and, and and they love them and they call them by their titles you know um, uh, the doctor the teacher the the you know the master you know it's it's this kind of almost like feudal political relationship so when you have people from Hezbollah, supporters of Hezbollah or any other party in Lebanon who kind of say, you know, I've been a committed supporter of this party for X amount of years, but there's a lot of things that need to be fixed within the party. And I do believe they need to reform themselves or they need to be more supportive of, um, of uh, structural reforms in the country. It's a shift, right? It's definitely a shift. And I think it's, it, it, there's a lot of factors on why this has happened, right? I mean, one of them being the fact that Lebanese people you know, have many relatives in diaspora for the most part, and they kind of see how things operate, even the most moderate social democracies, and they kind of realize that there's a lot of basic things that Lebanon can adopt and ultimately have a more productive economy and a more transparent system. And I think many people just want the bare minimum. They're not asking for anything that's extremely utopic, to be frank. 
Has Hezbollah themselves released any statements regarding the protests and the blast? Yeah, actually, um, I mean, um, the leader, their leader, Hassan Nasrallah, spoke after the blast. And of course, you know, he primarily talked about, you know, he probably, you know, he dismissed allegations that Hezbollah controls the port. And he kind of made this bizarre comment that Hezbollah is more knowledgeable about what goes on in the port of Haifa than the port of Beirut. Um, but in the end, he kind of said something to quell sympathizers and supporters who were in these protests and these sort of revenge protests when he sort of said something along the lines of, you know, don't use your anger now, save it, you will need it soon. And of course, this is just freaked out so many people, right? Um, but that was kind of his comment. Uh, he kind of dismissed all allegations and he, you know, and, you know he, he opposed uh, an international uh, investigation because he believes it would be politicized, but then he sort of called for a hybrid investigation. So, you know, he tried to be as pragmatic as possible. But of course, the big, you know, mic drop moment for him, I would say, is when he kind of said, you know, to my supporters or supporters of the resistance and, you know, the capital are um, at the protests, you know, don't unleash your anger now, uh, save it for later, you'll need it. And many people interpreted, the, interpreted it as him saying that it's going to be, you know, a political strife between different political partisans and particularly between pro-U.S. parties that will definitely um, explicitly target Hezbollah more now that there's uh, a lot of pressure on them and there's the econ- Lebanese economic crisis and so on. So this kind of freaked people out and I, th- and I think uh, it still does to this day, a month later or so. Well, I mean, it's impossible to predict anything, but it isn't looking good, man. I've been keeping an eye on it. I've got a lot of friends in Lebanon I've been talking to, and everyone is kind of very wary about what is going to happen in the future. Um, you follow all this, you know, you're reporting on all this. What do you think is the most likely scenario in the, in the upcoming weeks? I mean, to be honest, I thought that the Macron sort of plan where he was hoping just to kind of follow up between now and the new year to get a government formed... Um, and to kind of get things done, I thought that was g- going relatively smoothly for him. And so I was predicting something extremely lackluster um, and with lots of internal issues related to gentrification, aid distribution and so on, kind of being swept under on, on, under the rug. But now I, I am legitimately concerned about internal strife and, uh, and security crisis of sorts because you now have this uh, diplomatic dispute I would say between the French and the Americans and um, the fact that the situation economically is so dire that this will potentially spark strife between political partisans of the ruling class and we would see what we kind of saw like you know you know like you know a little over a decade ago where um, you had the massively divided political regime in Lebanon from different oligarchy um I just, um, I think the big question now going forward is one, how people will cope with the economic crisis because the trajectory continues to go in negative direction. And you can, and as you saw, Jake, you know, despite the poverty skyrocketing, despite the explosion, there's no interest in shifting the political and economic strategy from the ruling class at all. And are even willing to resign after half the capital was flattened anyway. Um, so... The question now is how people are going to cope. It's clear that Lebanon is going to become like this eighth country. Um, and then, of course, the big question is that how will the new political movements on the ground build themselves up, right? Um, elections are originally scheduled for 2022. Who knows if they'll be postponed or not? But the idea is that in times of crisis, there's always an opportunity for civil society to build themselves up. And by civil society, I mean unions, student movements, political parties. Will they seize the moment? We don't know. I think really, this is the only sort of, in terms of the uprisings interest, I think this is the biggest possible outcome. You know, there was some attempts of developing mutual aid networks and, and empowering unions and building these new collectives. And I think at a time like this, this is, the, this is what they can do. They have to keep building and organizing if they want to become a force to be reckoned with because they don't have the political leverage, they don't have the economic leverage, and they don't have arms. So if we're kind of thinking about this in a very sort of practical chessboard-like way, the only thing that the uprising can do right now is to, keep, is to maintain its movement building 
while also trying to cope as best as possible with this political and economic crisis and maybe um, responding to these crises as well in a way that sort of that sort of reveals alternative visions of how this country can be run. Um, and of course, I'm, I'm trying to end it on a positive note. But again, it's an opportunity, I think. And the question of whether they will seize it or not is, well, it's up to them. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. Um, where, where is Israel standing on all this? Like, we can't not mention Israel in this. I mean, I, I hate to be kind of harsh, but in, in some ways, the government at least must be loving all this chaos in Lebanon. The government in Israel, I mean. Oh, yeah, no, no doubt about it. I mean, you know, there were some... There are some instances, uh, you know, on the border where there was some, you know, some skirmishes between Hezbollah and, and Israel in the south, and there was a downed Israeli drone, and so on. Um, you can kind of see in the in the rhetoric and the narratives since the uprising started, you know, the trolls online or you know, you know, PR propaganda sort of stuff going on about you know how Lebanon is trying to free itself from the shackles of Hezbollah and while you know, protesters are saying Killon Yani Killon which means all of them means all of them all of them as in the entire oligarchy the entire ruling class and um, of course this attempt to sort of single out Hezbollah is sort of seen as this US led conspiracy and so on now they're kind of well I mean after the the port explosion there was the whole oh Hezbollah smuggles through the port Hezbollah runs the port it, uh, it's the black box that Hezbollah keeps away from everybody else and of course, now with the whole Macron plan, because Macron is sort of negotiating with Hezbollah, they, they allowed Hezbollah to be part of the negotiations table with the rest of the ruling class. Um, you can see sort of, you know, uh, sort of the, the, you know, you can see Washington and, and even Tel Aviv, I guess, a sort of playing it as the whole, this is a, an Iranian backed plan to consolidate Hezbollah's position and the solution has to be isolating Hezbollah. So you can definitely hear the rhetoric against Hezbollah, a lot of this sort of, um, oh, poor Lebanon, it's going through such a hard time. If only if it wasn't for Hezbollah, they would have been in far better shape. I'm sure you saw that uh, hilarious charade where they lit up the Lebanese flag in Tel Aviv after the port explosion uh, um, on a building or something. And so this is kind of situation. I mean, they're having a blast, uh, in my opinion, no pun intended. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's just, I mean, it is what it is, right? I mean, it surely is how they're, they're looking to play it like that. Um, all right, is there anything else you think we should mention before we wrap this up? Yeah, I mean, look, it's... Um, you know, you know, the most annoying thing when, it, when, when you kind of talk and have these conversations about Lebanon is just how... Well, I mean, apart from how frustrating it is because you feel like you're never going to get anywhere. But also, it's just... Um, it just shows how there's so many actors at play and how when you look at ruling powers, how sophisticated they can really be, um, they can come off as a participatory and inclusive semi-democracy or whatever you want to call it, but in reality, they ultimately function as, a, as an oligarchy or a strong top-down country. And I think there are a lot of misconceptions about Lebanon as being an exception in the region to so many things, simply because it doesn't have like a single ruling party or a royal family military rule. And I think if there's one major takeaway that people can really get from this economic crisis and this uprising and this political crisis really is that authoritarianism can can um, can sort of manifest itself in very different forms it can be very complex and it can come accompany very various different networks um, and we kind of saw the extent of this as people revolted and we saw the extent of this as people simply demanded for healthcare housing um, education and access to the most basic needs which are considered rights in most countries in the world yeah absolutely i mean it, it sounds corny but i say to people like you know when i talk to people about authoritarianism and how it creeps in yeah there, there's the most notable like you know 1984 you know george orwell's kind of version of the of the totalitarianism but then there's also like brave new world totalitarianism and fahrenheit 451 and then there's a mix of all of them do you know what i mean like just because you don't see the boot on your head it doesn't mean it's not coming do you know what i mean and i feel like what you're saying makes a lot of sense like they devised a very clever way in lebanon for that to be kind of all around you absolutely i mean yeah i mean i think i think when most of the world thinks of of an authoritarian state they think of gaddafi or 
or, or Assad or, or, or I don't know Saudi Arabia I guess or Iran and you know or, or, or this you know this crazy one guy sitting on a throne and just you know calling on people to shoot other people right but it's it's far more complicated than that um, yeah it's definitely a <laughs> it's definitely a tough nut to crack but uh, it's definitely a pivotal time right now for Lebanon and um, and I, I I'm, I'm quite baffled by the situation you know because whenever you feel like there's no way it can keep it can carry on after this it does just about and it shows how relentless this ruling class is and imagine if these people in power hypothetically speaking would use that tenacity to to provide um for the people rather than themselves it it, it really shows um, the extent of this um of this uh, this dogmatic rule yeah man it's a shame um, mate, tell me, uh, where, where can people find your work and follow you on social media and all of that? Yeah, so um, to follow me on social media, I'm on Twitter at uh, Shahayib K. It's my last name and the first initial of my first name. On Instagram, I'm at Kareem Shahayib, my full name. Um, I primarily write uh, as a freelancer for Middle East Eye. You'll find a lot of my work there. Um, I'm also um, a founding member and reporter for a local media organization called The Public Source. Uh, we have an investigation section coming soon, which I've focused most of my work on, um, where we focus a lot on um, different structural issues around Lebanon. And I'm very excited to share it with you all. It's a bilingual platform, so the work comes out in both English and Arabic. Yeah, man, I've seen it. It looks great. Um, looking forward to the investigative part of it as well. Um, mate, just spell your surname for us. I mean, you know what you know what we're like. <laughs> it's hard for us to understand. So just spell the surname. <laughs> no, totally. I, I, I feel it's all good. Uh, my last name, uh, you spell my last name uh, C-H-E-H-A-Y-E-B. And then my first name starts with a K. Thank you very much, mate. Really appreciate that, man. That was a great insight into what's going on. Yeah, likewise. It was great talking to you. Yeah, it was great talking to you, Jake. I know I, I know it's been a long time in the making, but we finally made it work. Yeah, man, it's fucking my fault. <laughs> yeah, thanks, mate. Speak <laughs> soon, man. No worries. Cheers, bye. Jim Chahayab speaking about the rise in tension in Lebanon after the uh, explosion at the port and the various fuckery going on with the uh, political factions there. Um, if you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us on the Patreon at patreon.com slash popularfront. We are completely independent. We don't take any money from venture capital or corporates or anything like that. Everything we have is from the listeners, the members on the Patreon. Um, so yeah, support us there. You get bonus episodes, loads of extra content, access to the community discord, all sorts of stuff. Patreon.com slash popularfront. Um, if you don't like Patreon, that's understandable. There's some dubious uh, nonsense political ideas. Um, so I know that a lot of people have, you know, deleted their Patreon. So you can support us. Otherwise, you can go to popularfront.co/support, or you can buy our merchandise. So look cool, support Popular Front. www.popularfront.shop. You will see all the t-shirts, t-shirts, jumpers, um, some other stuff there. It's no Teespring bullshit. It's proper nice merchandise. It's not fucking crap. It's not gonna fall apart. Um, yeah, check it out, popularfront.shop. We put a lot of, lot of effort into that. Can't speak today. <clears throat> um, this episode is sponsored by Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 Southwest Bond Avenue, 97239. Tell them Popular Front sent you, you might get a nice discount. The episode is also sponsored by Grindcore House, a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA, one in South, one in West. Check them out on social media at Grindcore House. The episode is also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and informing people about historical conflict propaganda. Get prints at propagandopolis.com and enter the code POPULARFRONT10 to get a 10% discount. And finally, the episode is also sponsored by Black Triangle, an independent company selling self-defense tools. Check them out at blacktriangle.com, but that is spelled B-L-K. So B-L-K triangle.com. Check them out. Tell them Popular Front sent you. Like I said, if you want to support us directly, go to patreon.com slash popular front. Um, 
subscribe to our YouTube. We've got a brand new documentary up there, the uh, Belarus Dispatch. It's doing very well, actually. People are really liking it, sharing it, watching it. Uh, look for that. It's called uh, Uprising in Belarus at youtube.com slash popular front. Subscribe and hit the bell because obviously the dickheads at YouTube have kind of nerfed the channel. So very rarely does any of our stuff come up in uh, recommended feeds, even if you do like follow all that kind of stuff. The algorithm has fucked us. This isn't me speculating. They literally sent us this weird message telling us about how like the content is violent, blah, blah. I mean, obviously the content is violent. We cover violent war and conflict across the world. They don't seem to have the same restrictions on big corporate media companies. But again, we don't have uh, the money or the, the pals or the hands in the circle jerk to be involved in that. So you're gonna have to share it for us, please. YouTube.com slash popular front. Share it on your social medias, tag us. Uh, Instagram, our Instagram is at, uh, what? <laughs> what is it, hang on, at popular.front. Uh, our Twitter is at popularfrontco, like the website, which is popularfront.co, not .com. I tried to buy it, whoever owns it doesn't want to fucking reply. So www.popularfront.co. Um, my Twitter at Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. Same for Instagram, all of that. My website, jakehanrahan.com. If you want to see what I did before Popular Front, I think there's a little misconception. Sometimes people say, well, like, yeah, cool, you do a, you know, you do this war podcast. What do you know? Well, you know, I spent five years covering war and conflict on the ground before starting Popular Front. So check it out, uh, jakehanrahan.com. Thank you very much to our high tier patrons. Without you lot, definitely this would all fall apart. Um, I understand that you know you don't have to support us at such a high level, and really appreciate that you do. Um, those people are Xander, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, JD, Jav, Bastian Gamello Ripmeyer, Ian Froese, James Cully, Michael Akakan. Ethan Reyes, Fitz Madrid, Joe Watt, Alex Northrop, Ed Coulthard, Johnny LaFleur, Clayton Taylor, Hugo Newski, Mike Barone, Scott Hopton, Liam Williams, Chris Cusimano, Degenerate Zero Alpha, Gergo Arane, uh, mate, please tell me if I've said that wrong, Gergo Arane, I think, uh, DR, Trey Nance, Charlie, Olin Thorne, Amy Rupert, Rubicon, uh, Minke, Minke, Mink, Frank Austin, Amelia Me, Christina Rivetti. Uh, where am I? I've lost my. Oh, yeah. Freya Northman, Ali Hunter, Moody Al Rashid, Maxwell Burke, Bill Wilson, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin. Uh, Ari from the Discord, Young Wasabi, Surushe Hawazi, Tony Bin, Adam Berg Snyder, Skartoon Music, uh, fucking laptop is dying, come on, it's frozen, Sebastian from the Discord, Stephen Davila, Anthony Kabarik, Patrick Bronte, Dan Dunham, Fletcher Tate, Chad Walker, Diana Gorvanek, Q-Ball, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Emily Molly, Axel Iverson, uh, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, and Kay Hardy Roberts. Thank you all so much for your support. Without this, without this, without your support, Popular Front would definitely be in the bin um, and I'll be on the road very quickly. So thank you all very much, much appreciated. Like I always say, the more that goes into Popular Front, the more content gets produced. This isn't any of us just chilling out, buying nice cars or anything like that. I mean, certainly we're not at that level anyway, but I think if you're on the Patreon, you'll see the more that comes in, the quality goes up uh, and there's more content. Um, Patreon.com slash popular front, check us out. Music in this episode, the intro was by Home and the outro was by Sam Black, AKA Son of Old. Check his music out at samblackpf.com.